Um, my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at eFree. It is so great to be with you all here today. If you're a guest with us, I'm so excited that you're here, uh, that you find our church to be welcoming and inviting, that people are friendly and kind to you, and that you find a place to belong with us here at eFree. I want to say hello to everybody here in the auditorium, everybody over in the venue, anybody watching online. We're so glad you could join us today. So we are going to continue our series in the Gospel of John, and as we do that, would you please pretend with me that you were a low-level employee in a large corporation. And the corporation does this thing where the CEO, every once in a while, does a leadership retreat with 12 employees in the company. He handpicks 12 different employees to go to his ranch up in the sand hills for a weekend, and he teaches them these leadership qualities that are important in the company. And you got chosen. You got an email that said, hey, we, you got picked. Here's the time you're going to get picked up. Here's what you need to bring you go, okay, I'm excited. So you decide you're going to dress to impress. So you've never met the CEO, and so you're going to impress him with their first impression. You get your nicest shoes, your nicest clothes. You pack your bag. You wait for the car to pick you up. Picks you up. You throw your bag in the back. You ride up to the sand hills. The car pulls over 300 yards from the ranch, and the driver says, hey, I was instructed to let you out here. You're like, this is weird, but, you know, leadership weekend, maybe there's a point behind this. So you hop out, you grab your bag, and immediately you begin to sink into the mud. You realize it's been raining a lot here up at the ranch. But you're like, I'm going to have a good attitude about this. You keep walking towards the ranch, and the closer you get, the more you sink in. And as you get closer, you also notice the CEO, he owns a lot of animals. He has cows, he has chickens, he has sheep, he has goats, he has dogs and cats, and he just lets them roam around. So you're beginning to wonder, is this just mud that I'm stepping in as you walk towards the house? Finally, you get up to the house, you press on, you make it into the door. They instruct you to take your shoes off because they are filthy at this point and put them in this big container. So you dump them in there, you go up to your room, you get unpacked, you get refreshed, you come down to dinner. And he has this massive wooden table with place settings for each person and he's sitting at the head of the table. So everyone finds their seats. They begin to serve the salad portion of the meal. And during the salad portion, he gets up from the table and he leaves the room. Like, well, this is weird. He comes back and he has the container of dirty shoes. He sets them down on the floor, then leaves again, he comes back. He's got a bucket of warm water with soap, he's got a towel, he's got a toothbrush. Like, okay, he's gonna ask somebody to like, come over here and wash the shoes. But instead he sits down on the floor and begins to scrub each pair of shoes. And it doesn't matter to him if they are the nicest pair in the container or are they the cheapest pair in the container. He scrubs them like they're his own shoes. And he scrubs, and he scrubs, and he scrubs. And the more shoes that he cleans, the dirtier he gets. And in the middle, you notice he's about to get to your pair of shoes, and there's something inside of you that makes you want to leap up and run over and say, hey, don't clean my shoes. Hey, like, I'll, I'll clean them. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of this. You, you just go back to the table. I'll, I'll clean my shoes. Don't worry about it. But you stay where you're at. And he cleans your shoes. And then he gets done cleaning all the shoes, and he is gross at this point all of the mud and whatever else is all over him, but he comes back to the table and he sits down and he says, let's talk about leadership. So this morning I want to talk about leadership, but I want to talk about what is it that Jesus shows us in this moment where he washes the disciples' feet, that his disciples have gross, nasty feet, and Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. What is he trying to show us? This is what I think he's trying to show us. He says, as followers of Jesus, we should follow his humble example and take up a lifestyle of humble service to one another. 
Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. God, I thank you that you are a God who serves. You are a God who bends down on hands and knees to wash the feet of his followers. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word in a powerful way this morning. God, would you use it to help us to see who you are? Would you use it to help shape our hearts and our minds towards service? God, would you please help me to be clear and concise? Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 13. So John is in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to the right, you'll find John. If you get to Acts, Romans, Corinthians, you're too far to the right, go to the left, and you will find John. So John 13, verse 1 is where we're going to start. While you're turning there, I want to give you some background. So this is a meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, and this is the last meal he's going to eat with them. That he is hours away from his death, hours away from being brutally beaten, having the skin ripped off his back, having nails driven through his wrists and his feet, and people are going to hurl insults at him while he suffocates and dies on a cross. He's hours away from this. And I think that he knows this is what's coming for him. And this is how he is using those final hours that he is going to teach his disciples and serve his disciples. So verse 1, John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John is giving us this intro to the second part of his gospel, that he's broken it into two parts. The first part is all about the signs and the evidence that he's presenting that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. And then the second part is all focused on Jesus' death and resurrection. What is he teaching as he's leading up towards his death? What is he doing while he's on the cross? What happens after he dies, and how does he come back to life? And so this is what he's going to focus in on now. He wants us to know that he's loved his disciples all the way up to this point. And now as he is on death's doorstep, he's not going to stop loving his disciples. He's going to continue to love them. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So Judas who is famous for betraying Jesus, and Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, is at this meal. That Judas has already decided that he's going to do this. He's approached the Jewish religious leaders and he said, what would you give me if I turned Jesus over to you? Because the Jewish leaders are looking for an opportunity to grab Jesus when there's not a crowd around him. It's not as if they don't know where he is because he's consistently been in the temple courts teaching and preaching, but there's a crowd around and the crowd won't let them grab Jesus. So they need an opportunity where there's not a crowd, where they can get Jesus by himself. And so Judas decides, I'm going to betray Jesus. And he goes to them and says, you know, what would you give me if I tell you the time and place you could get in where there wouldn't be anybody there? And Judas has already made this decision, and he's been prompted to do this. He has been influenced to do this by demonic, demonic forces. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus is sitting at the meal. People are eating. He gets up from the meal. He takes, out his, outer, he takes his outer clothing off so it doesn't get dirty. He goes and gets this bucket and water and a towel 
and he begins to wash the dirty, nasty feet of the disciples. Now, let's talk about foot washing and why it's important and why they did it, because this is a foreign concept to us in our society. We wear shoes, so when you go to someone's house, you take your shoes off, and then whatever you were stepping in or walking in just stays there. But in this time, they wore sandals. And so if you've worn sandals before, you know whatever you walk in eventually gets on your feet. You go to the beach, the sandals protect your, be- your feet from the heat of the sand and maybe glass in the sand, but you get sand all over, the, all over your feet, up your ankles, maybe even on your calves, which is why when you go to the beach, usually they have a foot washing station at the back where your car is parked. And you know, you, the pole sticks out, you push the button, you rinse your feet off. So you don't track sand into your car. Well, in the same way, at this period, they washed their feet so they didn't track whatever was out in the street into their house. And this is a time period where it's at least dusty, dirty, but you have Romans who ride horses around. You have people who are bringing goats and sheep and who knows what else to market to sell. And so if you've ever been to a parade where there's a horse involved, it walks long enough down the road, something happens. And I don't know if they have like people whose job is to run around and clean that up or it's just like that's part of the road now. But who knows what you're stepping in? And so when you come to someone's house, you want to clean off your feet so you don't bring whatever's in the street into their house. So if you are a good host, you provide a a water container and water and then a towel for people to wash their feet as they arrive. If you are a great host, you have a servant whose job it is to take off people's sandals and to wash their feet as they arrive. But one of the things you need to know is that foot washing is such a demeaning practice that if you were a Jewish servant, there was a Jewish law that said you could not be required to wash feet. That if you were a Jewish servant, that the law said you could not be told by your employer you have to wash feet. If they wanted someone to wash feet, they had to go find a Gentile, a non-Jewish servant, and then they could take that position. So washing feet is the lowest of the low positions in a household that could be Um, a servant could do. And here's Jesus, who gets up from the table in the middle of the meal, gets down on his hands and his feet, and begins to take the position of this lowly servant. So what would drive him to do this? What would motivate Jesus to take this position? So if you go back to verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So he's sitting there in the meal, and he's looking around the table, and he goes to thinks to himself, Man, God's put everything under my control. Has put everything in this room, on this planet, and the universe under my authority. There's not a person or a place that is not under my authority. That I have all power and authority, not just in this room, but on the planet. And then he goes on, he says, and that he had come from God and is returning to God. Then he thinks to himself that my position is that I'm equal to God. I came from God. I've come down here to earth. I'm going to return, return just in a few short hours back to God, to his presence. That I, There is no one that has a bigger position than me. There's no one that's got a bigger job title than God. And that's my job title. So verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and began to wash their feet. So what drives him to wash their feet? It's that he has all power, all authority. Is that he has this incredible position. There was no one higher, no one bigger than him. That there is none like him. So he says, I'm going to serve. I'm going to show them what leadership looks like. I'm going to show my disciples what my kingdom looks like. So this is the first thing we learned this morning. 
from what Jesus does in this passage. It's this. It's that Jesus lived a humble lifestyle of looking to serve others, not to be served by others. That Jesus lives this humble lifestyle where he looks to serve others, not to be served by others. That his heart, it's bent towards serving, it's not bent towards being served. Which means when he walks into a room, he asks the question, who here can I serve? Who here can I encourage? Who here can I bless? Who here can I help? Instead of walking in and looking around and saying, who here can serve me? Who here can help me? Who here can encourage me? Who here can help me? And so Jesus does this when he washes the feet, but he doesn't just do that, that throughout his life he has been serving in one way or another. So there's a couple of different instances where these large crowds have gathered together, and Jesus knows they're hungry, and he says to his disciples, because he's trying to teach them even then, he says, you know, we should feed these people. And I go, well, there's no way to feed them. It takes so much money or so much food. We don't have any of this. And he says, what do you have? He says, well, I have, we have a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish. He says, well, give it to me. And he just begins to multiply and feed people that are hungry that maybe would have collapsed on the way home, that he serves them. Jesus is constantly healing people. That there's never this moment where someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, would you heal me? Would you help me? And he says, well, I'm really too busy. I'm sorry. Or he says, you know, I've had some really difficult things going on in my life right now, and so I, I can't help you, but I'm sorry. Come back maybe a week, and I'll, I'll see what I can do. He never does this. That when people come to him for help, he helps them. That he comes across people who are demon-possessed. They are afflicted and influenced by demonic forces, and he, he heals them. He drives the demonic forces away. He sets them free. And then throughout all this, he's also teaching He's instructing people what God is like, instructing them what the world is like and how we should live in it. That he's constantly serving people by teaching. He never goes, man, like, I can't do this anymore. You guys just don't get it. I've done like, like three years of this with you, and still you, don't, you can't figure out what's going on. He never does that. He's constantly, even though there are some times he's like, you guys still don't get this? Like, I thought you would get it by now. But he continues to go over it with them again and again and again. So we see this attitude that he has in Mark 10, 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is the Son of Man. He's referring to himself, and he says, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve, even to the point of giving my life as a ransom for many. That his heart is bent toward service, bent toward caring for others, is not bent towards them caring for him which I have to be honest with you, is so different than my heart has been throughout my life. Throughout my life, my heart is bent towards being served, bent towards people taking care of me instead of me going, how can I help you? I was convicted of this in a big way a few years ago in my life group, that there was a season where we basically met in one person's home every week, and we would start with a meal that everybody would contribute to, and then we would have our study after the meal. And so each night, each Monday, I would come and I would lay down our contribution to the meal and then I would run to the couch. And I would sit down and relax on the couch while the host, she would put it all together and she would like put the table up, not put the table up, but she would set the table, fill glass with water, do all of that. Like week after week, I would just put my meal, my contribution down and run to the couch. And then I don't know how many weeks it took, but then finally God was like, Jordan, what are you doing? Like you were coming and you're just expecting this person to serve you. That you're, you're bringing like the minimum requirement, you're dropping it off, and you're like, you take care of that, and you just call me when dinner's ready. That was the position of my heart. 
that it wasn't, I'm going to show up and say, hey, can I help set the table? Can I fill glasses with water? Can I mix something? Can I stir something? You know, what can I do to help? And maybe then she might have said, you know, I got it. You go relax. But if that was the case, my heart was bent towards service, and she said, hey, you can go and you can laugh. I relax. I want to serve you. And to be clear, Jesus had times where he was served by other people. He wasn't like every time he came around, somebody's like, no, you can't serve me. I have to do it. There were times he allowed other people to serve him, but his heart was bent toward service. And I've been convicted over and again that my heart is bent toward being served. And we'll talk about that a little more in the message later about what do we do when we find our hearts in that situation. But in the meantime, let's see how the disciples respond to Jesus washing their feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So Jesus is washing feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter asks this ridiculous question of, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you will. It means after my death and resurrection, you will understand what I'm doing right now. And Peter has this reaction of, no, never ever will you wash my feet. Like, you can almost see Peter pulling his feet away from Jesus as he says this, which Jesus responds and says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So what does Jesus mean? Does he literally mean if I don't wash your feet, like you can't have a relationship with me? I don't think that's the case because my guess is that there are many people in this room who put their trust and faith in Jesus, surrender their lives to Jesus, but he has never washed your feet literally. And so if that was the case, then we would all be in a lot of trouble. So I don't think he's literally meaning you have to let me wash your feet. What I think that he means is that when he washes the disciples' feet, he is giving them this visible, tangible experience of what he's going to do for them on the cross. That he's a few hours away from dying on the cross, and when he dies on the cross, he'll be taking all of their sin, all of their shame, all of their guilt, not their literal dirt, but their spiritual dirt, onto himself. And he's going to wash all of that away for those who trust and believe in him. And so he's going, you think I'm doing something spectacular right now by becoming a Gentile servant for you? says, but you haven't seen anything yet. Wait until you see me dying a criminal's death in a few hours, and then you fully understand what I'm doing here now. And so we have to talk, um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So Peter has this funny reaction. Peter does this thing where he's like 180 all the time. So he's over here saying, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you're out. He's like, all right then. All of me, like just pour the, pour the whole bucket on me. Not just my feet, not just my hands, but my head, like all of it. And Jesus goes, what are you doing? You know, if you've had a bath, you just need your feet washed. You don't need your whole body washed. And what he means by this is not, I don't think he means literally if you've had a bath, though he could have meant that. But I think what he means is once I've cleansed you once, you don't need to be re-cleansed over and over and over again. You need to practice confession. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he justifies us. And there's this big word we use, justification, that describes a one-time act that occurs 
when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus. When we trust and believe in him, we surrender our lives. So we stand up off the throne of our life, we step to the side, and we say, no longer am I going to call the shots in my life. No longer am I going to decide what is right and wrong in my life. No longer am I going to be the one who is the ultimate authority in my life. But instead, Jesus, now you get to have that role. You get to be the king of my life. You get to direct me. You get to tell me what I can and can't do. You get to tell me what I should and shouldn't believe. You get all of that power in my life. When we give that position to Jesus, he justifies us. So we go from being a sinner to a saint. We go from being cut off and an orphan to being adopted into God's family. We go from being uh, dirty and wretched to being clean and righteous and new. And this one-time thing that happens, and it's once and it's done. It doesn't continue to happen over and over and over again. So he says, once you've had a bath, you don't need me to cleanse you again. You're clean. But then he says there's the foot washing thing. There's this, you only need to have your feet washed. What I think he means by that is this confession. That in any relationship, when we sin against somebody else, when we hurt them in some way, shape, or form, we have to confess that to them. That until we go to them and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I, I lied to you. Or I said this thing in anger, I should never have said that. Or I used a tone I shouldn't have used. Or I did this thing to you. Whatever it is, until we confess that to the other person, a lot of times there's this weirdness in the relationship. That, that sometimes over time we can move past it, but a lot of times it takes forgiveness. It, it takes someone coming and saying, I did this to you and it was wrong, would you forgive me? And that person extending forgiveness. Where in our relationship with God is very similar. That God forgives us once and for all, like we're done, like it's not a matter of our salvation's at stake, but there's this relationship that we want to remain healthy. And for it to remain healthy, we confess to God what we've done towards him, how, how we have rebelled against him, what we've done that was been wrong, where we've said to him, God, I know I said you're Lord in my life, but I really kind of tried to push you off of that this week. I said you're Lord in my life, but I also shook my fist at you this week and said you're dumb and I'm smart and I'll do what I want. We have to confess that to God. So God, I'm, I'm sorry that I did this. And as we do that, we have this, uh, it, re- it restores the healthiness in our relationship. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at here with Peter. He's talking about the one-time act of justification and then the continual act of confession uh, that we do towards God, saying that's what we need to do in order to remain clean. But he is also... He also says not all of them are clean because he knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows what Judas is planning to do. And so he knows Judas has not put his trust or faith. He knows that he hasn't surrendered himself, but he has been following Jesus around physically, but not spiritually, not in his heart. So verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, wash, now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus finishes washing all their feet, scrubbing the dirt between their toes. He goes back over, puts the water basin back, takes the towel off, puts the rest of his clothes back on, and he goes and sits down, and he says, do you get what I've done for you? Do you understand that what I just did was more than just washing dirt off your feet? He says, I am your Lord and Master. That's what you call me. You call me Lord and Teacher, and it's right that you do that because I am those things. 
says, but I, your Lord and your teacher, just got down on your hands and your knees and I washed your feet. I got down on my hands and my knees and I washed your feet. He says, I just did something that nobody else and all of their culture would ever do, that he has shattered for them this structure that says the weak serve the strong. Shattered the structure that says that those that have less honor serve those that have more honor. He says, in my kingdom, he says, you serve one another. It doesn't matter how much honor you have. It doesn't matter what power you have or position you have. He says, in my kingdom, you use all those things to serve and care for one another. So attached to this conversation, there is um, this other part of the conversation that Luke records and Luke 22, 24 through 27. I don't know if this happens before Jesus washes the feet or after he washes the feet. In either case, it does not look good for the disciples, like they should not be having this argument. Um, but they are, and I don't know if it prompts Jesus to wash their feet or they like still don't get it. But in verse, uh, Luke 22, verse 24, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Now, I would hope that they are not ridiculous enough to be con- adding Jesus into this conversation of like, okay, is Jesus better or is John better? Like, hopefully that they've already decided that Jesus is the greatest, and now they're trying to decide who is like the second greatest. Like, after Jesus, which one of us disciples is the most impressive? So they're having this argument. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So he knows their hearts. And he knows they're arguing about who's the greatest because they want power, they want authority, they want the ability to rule over each other. They want the ability to rule over God's people. And so they're arguing because whoever is the greatest doesn't have to serve. It's what's in their mind. And Jesus says, you guys have this all wrong. It says, in my kingdom, in my system, it says those that want to be the greatest, they have to become like the youngest, those that people think are the least important, those that who serve. He says, who is the most important in your society, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves the table? It says, of course, in your society, it's the one who sits at the table. He says, but I, I who am clearly the greatest am one who serves. And then I don't know if he then got down on his hands and his knees and he washed their feet or if he's calling back to what he had just done. But Jesus is the one who serves. That there has been none like him, no one greater than him, no one who can compare to him, but yet he takes the position of a servant. And the second takeaway we have this morning is that we see that Jesus is calling us into a lifestyle of humble service to one another. That he goes to his disciples and he says, you guys have the wrong idea. You are so focused on who can serve me. And he says, in my kingdom, it's about joining me on the floor serving others. It's about who can I serve. And so he calls us into this lifestyle of humble service to one another. Now, we may not be able to multiply bread and fish and feed thousands of people, but we can take a meal to a neighbor who is sick or a neighbor who just had a baby or who's going through a rough time in life. We may not be able to heal somebody by laying our hands on them and telling them to be better or rubbing mud in their eyes, but we can rock a sick child. 
We can go visit someone that's in the hospital or someone who's not doing well. We can pray for them over the phone. We can sit and listen to someone who's going through a really difficult time in life and they need someone to listen to them, someone to show them that they matter. We may not be able to teach with the authority or the cleverness that Jesus had, but we can share the gospel with those that don't know Jesus. We can point others towards him. We can share what we do know about him, about his goodness, his love, his care, his compassion. And so the question I have to ask myself, is my heart bent towards being served or is it bent towards serving? Because I study Jesus, his heart is bent towards serving. That he is coming saying, who can I bless? Who can I help? Who can I encourage? Instead of looking around saying, who, who here can encourage me? Who here can bless me? Who here can serve me? And so again, I confess to you that my heart is far too often more bent towards being served than it is bent towards serving. That there are too many times I've walked to, to dinners and I've looked around the table and I've thought, which one of these chairs can I sit in where they won't ask me to help clean up the table afterwards? Like, confession time. Or I've looked and said, hey, if I take my kids outside, will they ask me to come back and help? That my heart has wickedness inside of it. It's bent towards being served. It's bent towards saying to people, you take care of me. Like, this is where my heart's at, but that's not where Jesus' heart was. His heart is so much greater so much more incredible that he is so full. He has all power and all authority. He has all position. So he says, I am here as one who serves, not as one who is being served. So what do we do? What do we do if you find your heart like my heart where it's bent towards wanting to be served? The first thing we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, have I been washed by Jesus? He makes this point with Peter early on where he says, if you don't let me wash you, you can't have any part with me. And so you have to ask the question, has Jesus washed me with his life, death, and resurrection? Have I surrendered myself to him? Have I put my trust and my faith in him? And have I got off the throne of my life and said, no, you sit here because I am not to be trusted with directing my life? That if you have not done that, then Jesus has not washed you and you haven't had this new heart placed inside of you that has the ability to be bent back towards serving that it is stuck in the being served position. And unless you get this new heart that Jesus offers, it cannot be moved. But once you have surrendered to Jesus, once you have been washed, you have been cleansed, then this heart is more moldable. This heart can be moved. So then what we do is we confess the moments we find in our hearts this desire to be served. When we find ourselves going, if I sat there, would they ask me to, to do the dishes? We confess that and say, God, I'm sorry that I've come here with an attitude of being served. Or the times when you find yourself at home going, I'm doing more than my fair share around here. That I have to confess, God, I have this heart that doesn't want to serve. It wants to be served. I'm going, no one else is serving me. God, would you forgive me? Would you help bend my heart towards service? And in all this, we fix our eyes on our humble example that is Jesus. Uh, on our humble God, who is not one who sits at the table and says, hey, go get the bucket and come wash my feet, but instead he leaves the table and he goes and gets it to wash our feet. That we focus on him. As we focus on him, as we study him, as we think about him, as we pray and talk with him, we begin to mold and shape our heart to be more like his. We think about how he humbled himself even at the point of dying on a cross that he wasn't just willing to become a servant, he was willing to die in our place, a criminal's death. 
And for me, as I look at that, I think to myself that if Jesus could do that for me, I can do this thing that he's asking me to do for my kids or for my wife or for my church or for my neighborhood or for this person or that person. Because it has always to this point been less than dying on a cross. As I do those things, as I remember who my God is, it helps me and I ask God, by the power of the Holy Spirit you placed inside of me, would you mold and shape my heart to be more like yours? So the final takeaway this morning comes from John 13, 17. He says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. He's talking to his disciples. He says, now that you know this, now that you know that you've had this wrong picture of how the world should work, now that you know that it's not about being served, but it's about serving others. Now that you know that it's not about being the one at the table, but it's about taking the position of the one who serves the table. He says, now that you know this, now you know it's not about ruling and lording it over other people, ruling over them and getting to tell them what to do. He says, if you choose to join me in this humble lifestyle of service, he says, you, you will find joy. You will be blessed. So this word blessed can also mean joy. That it sometimes it's translated blessed and sometimes it's translated joy. So he's saying, if you do this, you will have joy. And so the third takeaway is a lifestyle of service produces joy. That a lifestyle of pouring yourself out for other people, it produces joy. Now your immediate gut reaction may be, uh-uh, I don't think so. Because our society has so wired us to believe it's the people who are served who receive joy. It's the people who are taken care of that experience joy. But I challenge you, think about some of the people that you know that are the most joyful. And my guess is many of those people, if not all of them, their lives are marked by service. That in my own family, I think about people who are the first to get up from the table to go and do the dishes, the first to get up to go and wash and clean and pick up. They're the people that are marked by joy. They're the people that are whistling and singing, that they're overjoyed to have people sitting around the table, that they're marked by it. That I think about people that serve in multiple places because of the stage of the life that they're in or the, the where their life is, that they can serve in multiple places in our church. Their lives are marked by joy. But you might be able to think of some people that you go, I know people that serve a lot and they're pretty miserable. They seem pretty bitter, pretty resentful, pretty angry. They do serve a lot, but they're always complaining about it. They're always frustrated about it, about how much they have to do. And I would argue the reason they're there is because they don't have this heart of service. They have a heart of being served and they're not being served. Because the reality, I think, for the majority of us the majority of the time, life is about service. Like there might be a very small group of people that acquire enough money or enough power, enough position, they can get to a place where other people serve them constantly. But that's not most of us, if any of us. Because life is all about service. Like you think about being a parent. Being a parent is about being a servant over and over and over and over and over again. That you change countless diapers you clean up toys off the floor three, four, five, six, a million times a day. That you do laundry and dishes over and over. It's about service. And so there's two types of hearts. There is a heart that is a heart that's bent towards service that finds joy because you connect with God each time you change a dirty diaper. That you are serving and loving. 
or there is a heart that's been towards being served and each diaper or each plate that you clean or each thing you do for your business or your company or each thing you do in your neighborhood, it produces more resentment because you're going, I'm not being served. Someone should be mowing my lawn. I shouldn't have to be mowing their lawn. Or someone should be scooping my walk. I shouldn't have to be scooping their walk. And the difference is people are living the same lives of service, but one has a heart that's bent towards it because God has grabbed a hold of them and said, life is about service. It's not about trying to acquire power and position and authority so that you can have other people serve you. It's about getting down on your hands and knees and joining your Savior on the floor, saying, where can I serve? Where can I help? And I'm convinced as I look at different people's lives who know Jesus and they know that truth that this is actually true that we are going to have to serve, the majority of us are going to have to serve, and the question is, will I join Jesus with the heart of service, or will I say, no, I want to be served, and it's going to create resentment and bitterness in us as it continues to frustrate us that not enough people serve us. So as we wrap up real quickly, the next steps for us, the next step is this, ask the question, where, God, do you want me to serve? Where is it that you've placed someone in my life that, God, you want me to serve? Is it in my home? Is it in my neighborhood? Is it in my workplace? Is it here at the church? And if it's here at the church, you would go, yeah, I don't have a place to serve. I'm coming on Sunday mornings. I have a life group, but I haven't taken that next step to serve. Then pull out your hand out and choose one of those things that you have a skill or an ability that you could say, hey, this is going to be a blessing. This is a place I can use my gifts. I can join God in what he's doing here in our church. And then place it in the box. But if you're already serving in two, three places, but you're not in a life group, then don't click one more box. Instead, join a life group. So as followers of Jesus, we should follow his humble example and take up a lifestyle of humble service to one another. And I think if we do that, we will actually find that it produces joy. Would you pray with me? Father God, God, I thank you that you are a God who serves. You are a God who is not above doing any task, any service, that you were a God who did not show up and say, build me a palace. You were not a God who showed up and said, get me servants to fan me and to feed me grapes. But instead, you were a God who came and said, where is the bucket of water? Where is the towel? I'm going to wash people's feet. You were a God who said, I am going to take their place, to wash them and cleanse them, to make them holy and righteous, to make them new so they can have a part with me. They can be united to me. And God, I'm so grateful that you did that. I'm so grateful that it's made a heart of service possible to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help me and help us to confess to you the moments we want to be served, confess to you the moments we want people to look out for us and take care of us instead of saying, God, would you help us out of the fullness we have in you to serve others? God, we love you. We thank you for you goodness. We thank you for your service, and we pray that you would help us to find joy as we join you serving wherever you are. pray this all in your son's name. Amen.